0: It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast, episode 47. Hello and welcome to this episode of It Was Almost Real, the Pro Wrestling History Podcast. And this is the podcast dedicated to professional wrestling history from 1870 to 1920. Although sometimes we range uh, farther than that, particularly when we're covering stars of the 20s that are still wrestling in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. My name is Ken Zerman Jr., and I'm not joined by my normal cohorts this week, and this is actually was not planned to be episode 47. The original episode 47 is going to come out as episode 48, but we had to record this that podcast on Skype because after the last episode that we released, episode 46, which was me and my cousin Dan... Dan went into the hospital the following day and he's been on the injured reserve ever since. So he's great news is he's on the mend, he's healing up quickly, and we will be back in the Million Dollar Studio here in probably about three to four weeks. But until that time we've got to do a couple workarounds with the uh, Skype. And so we have the file, I'm going to process it, and that will be episode 48. I'll record a new intro for it to explain to people on that episode what's going on. So this week's gonna be a, a solo episode and I'm gonna go into a little bit of an update. And the review is kinda of gonna serve as the main topic for the discussion this week because I'm going to review the wrestling match between 52 year old Jim Londis, the biggest box office star, In the history of professional wrestling. And Primo Carnera. Who was the world heavyweight boxing champion. From June of 1933 to June of 1934. But both of Well I don't know that Carnera ever had a prime. But Landis is well past his prime in this video. And it shows one of the problems of professional wrestling. Particularly today but even back then is when there is no video of a person when they're in their prime and then you see a video where they're in their early 50s and clearly not in their prime anymore, you ask yourself, well, what was the big deal about this person? Why was everybody so enamored of them? And it's because we never got to see them at their prime or in the context of the place where they were really over. We're only seeing them at the tail end of their career. It would be like seeing uh, Chris Jericho in his last two years in AEW when he is in his uh, early 50s as and not having ever seen the WCW Chris Jericho when he got over despite that company's best efforts to keep him from getting over or his run in WWE where he was the first undisputed champion. So that analogy helps you Uh, To understand it. I announced on the what is going to be episode 48 that just about all of the books that I've written on Amazon are now going to be available on audiobook. Amazon has started a beta program where you can use virtual voice to uh, narrate your audio or your uh, print books. And I originally bought the microphone not to do a podcast, but to record my books on audio. But it takes quite a bit of time. I've never really had the time to sit down and, and be able to do that. Well, this program made that possible. And I originally, I was just going to listen and see what it sounded like. Because we had some trainings at work that were virtual voice for a few years ago. And it was terrible. The virtual voice did not sound like a real person. And it would like put you to sleep within just a few minutes. Because it was just a monotonous, robotic voice talking to you. So, I opened the first book and I was like, if that's what it sounds like, I'm just going to stop. And I'll eventually one day have the bandwidth and time to be able to put the books on audio like I always wanted to. But these virtual voices are pretty good. They sound like real people. So I've been converting all of those... I'm not converting them. Well, I guess I am converting them to uh, audio format on Amazon over the last month. So by the end of February, and this episode is going to come out on Monday, February 26, which means that the original episode is going to come out on Monday, March 4th. All of the books that are going to be available on audiobook, which is almost all of them, with, with there's like three or four that are so short they didn't really qualify, and I didn't wasn't going to go back to republish them to get them where they were eligible. So those books won't be available on audio, unfortunately. They are still available in ebook and print, but out of the 21 or 22 titles. I would say 17 of them, probably, are available in audiobook. So you're talking the two family history books or not. And then there's like three or four. They're mostly St. Louis history or the one book that I had published on Theodore Roosevelt's uh, third-party campaign in 1912. Other than that, I think almost all of the books are available on audiobook on uh, Amazon. So, if you always wanted to check out one of the books, but you didn't want to read it, you wanted to listen to it, you'll now have that uh, option. I think that's it for any updates as far as books and conversions and all of that. Um, I announced a few weeks ago that I was going to try to do two books at the same time. But I don't think that that's really feasible. I, I think it's better just to focus on one, complete it, and then move on to the next project. So I have already promised people that I am going to finish the uh, Chief Desmond book. That will be my last St. Louis history book. And I'm hoping to have that out. Uh, April's probably too soon. Maybe May-ish, June-ish time frame. And then the next... Uh, Combat sports book, which will almost assuredly be professional wrestling, would come out in maybe the fall of next year, depending on how much I'm able to get accomplished. So, in my day job, which I love and I will never leave, um, we're getting ready to go into recruitment during the summer. The summer is really our busy time from about May to September. So, I'm pretty much only writing on the weekends during that time and I don't have the kind of time and bandwidth that I normally do during that period, which I'm not complaining about. We handle some of the most important tasks we do um, during the summer, so I I need to be uh, focusing on that as well, or I need to be focusing on that more than I need to be focusing on other things, I should say. So I'm, I'm thinking the fall of next year, and right now the project I'm planning on doing is Ed Strangler Lewis from 1916 to 1920. Once I've completed that research project I've pretty much covered Lewis's career pretty uh thoroughly and I I did the same thing with Gotch and I did the same thing with Sabisco. so then it's really um, Stecker maybe next or John the Nebraska Tiger Man Pesek And the subject of our uh, podcast today, Jim Londos, I will not do a book on Jim Londos his entire career. And besides that, I was listening to a podcast the other day, uh, Shut Up and Wrestle, Brian R. Solomon's podcast, where he was interviewing a historian that writes for Slam Wrestling, Steve Johnson. Steve Johnson's just done a book on Londos and his... uh, you know, career. So I would recommend go read that. If I do a book about Landis, it will only be focused on his time in St. Louis during the 1920s when he really became a national star. And he became a national star in St. Louis wrestling for John Contos originally, but Tom Pax, who became the St. Louis promoter and was a promoter from the mid 20s to the late 40s, early 50s was really Londos' supporter, backer, promoter, and really helped Londos to become a big star and was always Londos' backer on a national level as well. So if I do anything about Londos' career, it will be strictly focused on St. Louis and I can kind of combine St. Louis history and combat sports history in the same book. So if I don't do Louis, there's a chance I would do uh, early Stecker, John the Nebraska Tiger Man Pesick would would be focused on his very uh, high-profile contest of the 1920s and the one double cross he did on his friend, or Londis in St. Louis in the 1920s. It'll, it'll be one of those projects is what I'm going to work on. And I'm sure people are like, well, why would you announce this? Other people might. Well, other people can do the research. They can write their own books. I, I don't mind that at all. For me, I have my own perspective, my own research, and my own view on things. And it will probably differ quite a bit from what anybody else uh, writes. So I welcome anybody else writing about these areas. It's a neglected area of history. Maybe they'll find something that I haven't found. Or maybe they'll report on something that I haven't uh, seen. So uh, more power to them. I don't care if uh, people want to re- write and research the same things that I do because I'll bring my own unique perspective, background, and views to it. So um, I think that's it for the update. Well, let me we cover uh, Elimination Chamber because we recorded episode 48 on Saturday, February 24th and I had watched about four of the matches from Elimination Chamber. So I've had a chance to watch the last two now, so I guess I'll go ahead and cover them. If you have not watched the event and you don't want to see that, you know, skip ahead a few minutes or stop listening to it now, go watch the show, and then come back. But the last two matches were the main event match, which was the men's uh, chamber match. I'm sorry, the co-main event, because the main event was actually Rear Ripley versus Nia Jax. Which, that should have been the main event. Rhea Ripley is the biggest star in Australia. Probably one of the top three or four biggest stars in professional wrestling now, period. So her match with Nia Jax should have been the main event. But the co-main event and the set up who would be challenging Seth Rollins for the world title at WrestleMania was the men's elimination chamber match. And it went almost an hour with entrances. Without entrances, it probably went about 45 minutes. But all in all, I think this is another... Paul Triple H, Triple H Levesque has made very few bad moves since he's taken over WWE. And I say it quite a bit, but it it's makes sense. He seems to know how to promote certain people. My only complaint with um, Triple H, and I know Shawn Shawn Michaels is very involved in the content as well, they have a tendency to fall in love with people and try to get them over, even if they're not somebody that the fans are really uh, adapting to. With that being said, I do think that Grayson Waller is really starting to get over with the fans as well as Austin Theory. And they could be great heels. But somebody please get uh, uh, Grayson Waller a new outfit. He looks like a reject from a kid's summer basketball camp. But it's very hard to take him seriously when he looks like that. He's actually very good in the ring. He's a good talker. As is Theory. I think they're both future superstars along with Braun Breaker. But get him some new gear. He just looks absolutely ridiculous out there. And but the uh, men's elimination chamber match was. And let me. I'm going in order of entrance here. So it was Kevin Owens, Logan Paul, Bobby Lashley, Randy Orton, and then the guys that started the match out were Drew McIntyre and LA Knight. And. This match did a fantastic job of setting up WrestleMania. I am curious because there was a little wrinkle at the end where Logan Paul was involved in helping Drew McIntyre to beat Randy Orton to win the whole match. And Logan Paul and Kevin Owens, it definitely seemed like they were setting that match up for WrestleMania. But I I, I hope they don't go into a three-way. I, if I never see another three way or another ladder match in my entire life, it will be too soon. So hopefully they're not going to do that, but that was an interesting wrinkle. They definitely set up LA Knight versus uh, AJ Styles, which I think will be a fantastic match. And then they set up uh, Seth versus Drew by Drew winning the whole thing. And overall it was a entertaining match it kept my attention even though it went so long and then we get to the main event which I was really looking forward to and I have to say I wasn't really impressed with the match and the reason I wasn't impressed with the match and I think the fans started feeling the same way was the match went about 20 minutes and I would say that Nia Jax probably kicked Rhea Ripley's butt for 17 or 18 of that 20 minutes. It started, you started to say, okay, I didn't come here to see Nia Jax just annihilate Rhea Ripley that only for Rhea Ripley to pull it out at the end, which she did. It, it was getting to be too much. Nobody expected Rhea to squash Nia Jax, but you would have expected a little bit more even of a, a match, not Naya dominating most of it and then Rhea getting her finisher on her at the end and pinning her I just I didn't think much of it and there was a spot outside the ring where Naya tried to put her through the uh, announce desk she didn't go so then Naya stood on a chair and did an elbow drop onto the announce desk and you know they both went through at that point And the fans started booing. And it wasn't booing Nia Jax, Boo, you hurt our hero. It was, Boo, this is not what we came to see. Now, they got him back at the end when uh, Rhea went over. I think the fans in general went home happy. But I don't think they liked that story either. So, one of the... And I can't say it's necessarily the booking. I think it was how that match was produced. And I don't know... Who was responsible for that? Was it the producer that told him to do it that way? Was it Naya and Rhea came up with this? Who was calling the match? There's so many things we don't know. But that that I, that match left me a bit flat after a pretty good overall show. And since uh, Triple H has taken over the creative, the pay-per-views, are premium live events for most of the people in the United States, have been much better so and no I'm not going to take the opportunity to uh, take pot shots at AEW Um, like I said a few weeks ago I can't see Tony Khan doing some of the horrific things that have been alleged that Vince McMahon has done so I'm not going to take too many pot shots at them and give them their due. They have a dedicated audience of 7 to 800,000 people that are going to keep coming back week after week to watch the show. That you could have a profitable wrestling company if they would run smaller buildings and if they would cut out some of the talent that they never use. You know, WWE is not going to buy every piece of talent that Tony Khan cuts. They did take Cody, they did take CM Punk and they're using them very well but every single person that Cody or that uh, Tony cuts is not going to the WWE so it's not like you're going to cut oh um, let's look at people that he's cut some of the people that nobody would have any interest in obviously they would be interested in Jade uh, Cargill and signed her right away if he cut Buddy Matthews they'd probably sign him right away But if you went out and you cut um, Private Party or The Best Friends or The Lucha Brothers I don't think WWE is signing any of them. So you could cut down on some of the people you're paying run smaller buildings and you would be profitable again. You have a dedicated fan base of just a few hundred thousand shy of a million. So build on that and just be a strong company and give people a opportunity to go somewhere else if they do leave leave wwe i don't know that they're going to do that but i think if they did that they would be a very profitable company and they'd be around for a long time i think that the uh, television rights are going to continue to be a excellent source of revenue for both wwe and And AEW. Although WWE is the big boy on the block. And is going to make a lot more money. So the match I was going to review this week. Also kind of leads into my history topic. And that is the match between Jim Londis. And Primo Carnera from 1950. Now this is long past both of their physical primes. And I need to give a little bit of background for Primo Griner because wrestling fans probably are not very familiar with him at all. Jim Londis, I would imagine even if you're not that familiar, you've at least heard of him because he is, to this day, still the biggest box office attraction in the history of professional wrestling. In Greece, he did something I don't think will ever be done by any wrestler or wrestling company and that he he was selling out 100,000 seat soccer stadiums and that in Italy uh, not Italy, I'm sorry in Greece when he returned to Greece in the 40s and 50s he might have been when he's in the 30s when he's in his prime but in the United States Landis was selling out ballparks in the 1930s drawing 30, well, I don't think he ever drew 40,000 fans, so maybe he didn't sell out to ballparks. But he was drawing 30,000 fans to ballparks in an era where you didn't draw a crowd of 20,000 most of the time, even for a a huge show. Uh, Two of the biggest matches of the 1920s were the matches after the 1925 Double Cross, where Lewis took the title back from Munn, which Munn really didn't have anymore, but... Uh, let me chew my food Like for the fourth or fifth time. Just a real quick refresher if you've never listened to the podcast before. In 1925, the Goldust Trio, which controlled professional wrestling in the, in the 1920s, decided to put the title on a former uh, college football player named Big Wayne Munn, who did not have any legitimate wrestling skills. He had been taught how to perform a match well enough to have a match, but if a wrestler really uh, wrestled him, he would lose. He had no wrestling skills. So they were very careful to only book him with people that they trusted. Well, they booked him with Stanislaus Hibisko, who decided to shoot on him and beat him legitimately in two straight falls. Not in the manner that everybody has reported on, but just he beat him in two straight falls. So... Um, After he had been beaten by Zabisco, the promotional groups uh, leveraged their relationships with some of the athletic commissions, and Zabisco was not recognized as the world champion in Illinois and Michigan. He was recognized as the world champion in New York and Pennsylvania. So you've got a divided world title now. Because some of the commissions recognize Zabisco. Some of the commissions still recognize Munn. So then they have the match in late April, early May. Actually, I think it was May. It was about a month later. On the same day, Lewis beats Munn to take back his version of the title, which is Illinois, New York. I'm sorry, Illinois, Michigan. And they had their match in Michigan. Joe Stecker wrestles Zabisco, the recognized world champion in New York and Pennsylvania in St. Louis at St. Louis University's field. And Stecker beats Zabisco for the title. So now Stecker's the champion of Pennsylvania and New York. Lewis is the champion of Illinois and Michigan. The reason I brought that up is because those matches were some of the biggest matches of the 1920s. And they drew 17,000 fans to the match in Michigan. And it was slightly more in St. Louis. I want to say it was 19,000 fans to Slew Field in St. Louis. Those were huge crowds. Crowds, you had a very good crowd in the teens and 20s. It might be ten. 12,000 because they drew 30,000 fans to the second gotch Hackenschmidt match but that match so turned fans off it was hard to draw those kind of crowds anymore i'd say the typical crowd was more in the one to eight thousand range really big matches you might get five figures low five figures 10 12,000 people so when they did the 17 and the 19 that was huge they didn't do that again until the 30s with londis because again people were disgusted by the politics of you had somebody clearly beat the champion in two straight falls and two commissions say he's not the world champion people could see it for the corruption that it was so again wrestling hurts itself and it's not drawing that many fans until londis comes along in the 30s londis is drawn 30 to 30 i think the biggest crowd he got was 34,000 to see him wrestle uh, Ed Strangler Lewis in 1934 and I can't remember if it was the Polo Grounds in New York or Wrigley Field in Chicago but it was one of those venues so Landis is a huge star Landis was kind of a late bloomer So he was originally a carnival strongman, and he had a fantastic physique in his 20s. He looked like a bodybuilder, and this is, of course, pre-steroids and all that. He was on the short side. I'd say he was 5'7", probably. Maybe he was 205 in his bodybuilding days, and a lot of times he was about 180, 190 for his wrestling matches. But that's where he learned to wrestle was the carnivals. So when he was the strongman, some of the carnival wrestlers taught him how to hook, which is to use submission holds. And he was never on the level of Stecker or Lewis or John the Nebraska Tiger Man Pesek. But Landis was not a slouch. Um, Carnero was not going to shoot on him because Carnero would have got stretched. Even though he was a foot taller than Landis. Uh, Carnera really was a performer when it came to wrestling. He he might punch you. You didn't want that happening. But he really didn't know much wrestling. Landis really uh, comes to prominence in St. Louis in the early 20s, 22, 23. But he's already 25, 26 years old at the time. He was born in 1897. So, (coughs) Ed Strangler-Lewis is older than him, and Stecker's older than him by a couple of years, but he's really in that generation, even though he came along a decade later. Landis really hits his stride in the 30s, so in 1930 he's 33, by the end of the decade he's 43. And by the end of the 30s he's pretty much done as world champion, But he's still a well-respected wrestler and a sought-after performer because he could always put on great matches, and he's a name value. So now let's talk about Carnera. Carnera was a boxer who came from Italy in the early 1930s, late 1920s, to challenge for the World Heavyweight Boxing Championship. And there's a lot of question as to how many of his matches were fixed and how many of his bouts were contests because the mob controlled Carnera's contract and managed him. Carnera to this day still has the record for knockouts for a, I think he had 89 wins and 72 of those were knockouts. And he was a big, strong guy. I mean, he was six. I'd say he was at least six-five or six-six. They probably said he was bigger. And he was all of 260 pounds, probably. And he was pretty muscular. Again, pre-steroid era. He's a pretty muscular guy. And he becomes the world champion by beating uh, Jack Sharkey. And there was always some question about that fight because. Uh, Carnera steps on Sharky's foot and hits him and knocks him out. And Luthez swore to his dying day that that was a work. And it, I mean, he was controlled by the mob. It could have been. But I sparred lots of guys and my old training partner, his fa- favorite tactic was to step on your foot before he moved in to hit you. And you can't get away when they step on your foot like that. So it could have happened legitimately. It could be some kind of a dive. We'll never really know what was legitimate and what was not. But he's a fairly active champion, and he held the title for a year until he fought Max Bear, who will also figure in in this wrestling match. But Max Bear was uh, kind of known as the... the clown prince of boxing he was a uh, cut up in a card and he had tremendous knockout power even though he was five or six inches shorter than carnera and probably 50 pounds weighed 50 pounds less bear could knock you uh, stiff with his punches he was a heck of a puncher and he basically just knocked carnera uh, silly carnera was never a smooth boxer He's kind of a plotter and, you know, not pretty to watch. But, you know, his thing was power. Well, he fought somebody who was powerful and could slip his stuff. And Max Baer kind of annihilates him. Baer holds the title for a couple of years. <clears throat> Eventually, after he retires, just like Carnera tries, uh, Baer goes into acting. And Baer has a more successful acting career than Carnera does. It's a much bigger ass for Carnera, though. English is a second language, and with his size and look, he is going to be typecast quite a bit. So in 1945, he's discovered by Jewel Strongbow, who is the booker for Los Angeles, and they start booking him into some professional wrestling matches, and he does have an aptitude for it. Again, he's never going to be the Smoothest, greatest wrestler in the world, but he can put on a believable enough match that they can use him. And Strongbow brings him along very carefully, matches him with the right people. He has a tremendous undefeated streak. And at the time of the match, that he wasn't undefeated anymore. He'd been beaten in the 40s, and uh, Luthez almost killed him on a backdrop. But by the time of this bout in 1950. Carneras 43, Landis is 52, and they're going to have a big match. And I think this was in Los Angeles. I think it might have been at the Olympic Auditorium. But it's going to be Landis versus Carnera with Max Baer as the referee. Now, you may not have remembered seeing Max Baer as an actor, but a lot of people... Will have seen him and his son in syndication, because Max Bear Jr. was Jethro Bodine on The Beverly Hillbillies, so a lot of people knew who Max Bear Jr. was, even if they didn't know who Max Bear Sr. was. But Max Bear Sr. is the boxer who is going to referee the Landis versus Curnier bout, which I will have a link to that match in the show notes. At Kenzerman Jr. Dot com slash episode forty seven. Uh, if you go on to YouTube and you'll find that bout, you'll also see Landis versus Bronco Nagursky and Landis versus Shikat, which are much more apropos of Landis in his prime. So if you want to see an example of Landis closer to his prime. When he takes on Schickett, he's definitely in his prime. That's the 1930s, so he's 33 years old. Nagurski, he's still late 30s, early 40s, and that was a, a good match, from I can remember. But realize, all three of the matches that are there on YouTube, Londis versus Nagurski, Londis versus Schickett, and Londis versus Carnera, and there, I think there's a handful more. Those are all drastically edited videos. Those matches, I know Landa's versus Nagurski and Landa's versus Shiket were a couple hours and you know they're cut down to like 15 minutes. The same thing with Carnera, the first fall is in 38 minutes 35 seconds yet you have only saw probably five to seven minutes of action. So they greatly cut down the match. So you're not seeing the match in its entirety, you're just seeing highlights of what that match was. And you can still see Londa still focuses more on wrestling. Um, Carnera is playing up his strength. And at the time of this match, Carnera had been wrestling for five years. So he wasn't really green anymore. But this was probably as good as Primo Carnera was ever going to be. And they told an interesting story. And then the match will end in a draw. Which means the Los Angeles office didn't want to beat Carnera, but weren't going to ask Landis to put him over either. So I'm interested to see what people think of that match. I wish there were so many more matches because the Gotch-Hackenschmidt 2 match was on film at one point. The matches where Munn dropped the title back to Lewis and Stecker took the title from Zabisco, those were on film at one time. Most of the big fights of the teens and 20s, big uh, boxing fights and big wrestling matches, were on film. The film companies were filming those and showing them in movie theaters. Almost all of that is lost. We do have some really grainy footage of the Stecker-Kaddock match from 1920, but most of the films are truncated films of the 1930s and some of the 40s, we really don't get full match film until the 1950s, and we're just fortunate that a lot of that was recorded for national TV broadcasts, and it's been preserved, and there's archives that have those films that have been preserving them. But 50s is about as early as we have where we have a full match where you can really see what's going on. Now, it's a shame because a lot of the history has been lost and I think a lot of people are surprised because of my love for MMA and legitimate contests and stuff that you know I would like professional wrestling well some of it has to do with there was no MMA when I was a kid and we didn't know what would happen when you know people were really legitimately going at it um, boxing was legitimate and my dad got me watching that when I was pretty young and they, you don't fix fights anymore by telling somebody to go out and take a dive you just fix the judges it's a lot easier and nobody can really argue with it because it's all a uh, judgment call so people can't really say oh yeah it was corruption no it's a judgment call Whereas if the person took a dive, sometimes it was obvious the person was taking a dive. But I really got into professional wrestling more. I would watch the TV show from St. Louis. But I really got into it when my older sister Vicki used to take me to the matches. We'd go every three weeks to Keel Auditorium. And then once or twice a year, we'd go to the big show at the Dome, which was in my neighborhood, right adjacent to my neighborhood. And uh, we could walk there if we wanted. We usually drove, but we could walk there if we wanted. But it was something that me and my sister shared and really enjoyed up until about 84, 85 maybe. By 85, the wrestling I liked was pretty much dead. Um, Crockett was still fairly decent. But I fell out of love with pro wrestling for quite a while when I had discovered MMA again in 2005. And then that coincided with all the garbage of the Attitude Era when we should have really seen how sick Vince McMahon was back then. And I had fallen out of love with watching it and I fell in love with MMA. I think the problem with MMA today is it's just too saturated. There are so many fighters and so many fights. And you don't have, in my mind, the big personalities like you used to have with a Chuck Iceman Chuck Liddell or a Tito Ortiz. You know, the uh, Andre Arlovskis. Those bigger personalities are kind of gone, and the ones that are out there, are like a Colby Covington, you can't stand. And truth be told, I couldn't stand WWE. I quit watching it for years. I finally came back and started watching NXT. At the recommendation of someone, and it was closer to the stuff that I used to like. And now, with WWE and Paul Levesque in charge, it's going back to being something that's enjoyable to watch. Yes, it's prearranged. So is all the TV you watch for the most part. Uh, sporting events aren't, but you know, we also know that from history that World Series have been fixed and other things have been fixed. So, for the most part, when we watch a sporting event, like baseball or football, we are just going to assume that it's a legitimate contest, but we really don't know if, because of gambling or something else, somebody's working with somebody to adjust an outcome. But to me, pro wrestling is just another art form that that you would like to go watch, you know, like, a play or a uh, exhibition of any kind so but i can't say that i i'm a fan of pro wrestling like i was when i was a kid i'm more a fan of pro wrestling history and reading about things and discovering was this legitimate was that legitimate i don't know maybe um and making judgment calls based on what you can find out it'd be a lot easier if we had film though I guess that's the point that I was going around my wrist to get to my elbow was if we had those films, it would be easier to research and look at and go, yeah, I don't think so. Or yeah, I think so. But we don't. So we do the best that we can with the written accounts that are out there. And so this was going to obviously be a little bit shorter because I'm here by myself and the, um, next episode we've already got recorded it will be episode 48 instead of episode 47 it'll be out on the fourth and on that I set the record straight on the uh, a couple of the things I said about William Muldoon I wasn't wrong but I had missed a couple of things that I heard when I was putting that audio or that book on audio And then our main topic on that next podcast is going to be where do some of these wild stories come from? And it's usually the wrestlers or the promoters. And then for the next one or two episodes after that, we are either going to talk about Dan McLeod or Tom Jenkins, two of the American heavyweight wrestling champions. And we might talk about one-on-one podcast and one on the other because they're two of the more important professional wrestlers of the late uh, 19th century and early 20th century, but I think they're much less well-known than Farmer Burns or Frank Gotch or Ed Strangler-Lewis. So we're going to talk about those two champions in some of the upcoming podcasts. So I hope you enjoyed this one. Uh, Please rate and review us if uh, you get something out of this. Uh, Tell other people that are interested in pro wrestling history about the podcast. And hopefully we'll have the band all back together. Um, we have been holding one thing. We are not going to talk about this Vince McMahon scandal too much more because it makes me very grumpy anyway when I talk about it. Uh, I have nine sisters, so this kind of behavior I find completely and totally abhorrent. And I have a daughter. And if somebody tried to do these kinds of things with my daughter, they, they, I'd be heading to the penitentiary and they'd be heading somewhere else. So, I don't want to talk about that scandal too much, but Dan and I, because there is a generational difference between us and my sons, Caleb and Trey, we did want to get their perspective on it because even though they're not pro wrestling fans and they do not have much experience with Vince McMahon, so they don't have some of the feelings, both positive and negative, that Dan or I would have. And we would just like their perspective as being members of the younger generation what they thought when they read about it because everybody in the world I think has read about this now so we are going to talk about that in an update in one of those upcoming episodes we're not going to go too long into it Uh, the boys can uh, be meant a few words anyway sometimes so they're probably not going to go on to it on a diatribe about it like I did so we will get their perspective and then kind of move into the history topic on one of the future episodes, but it's kind of hard to have a happy uplifting podcast when we're talking about that kind of stuff. So, and I think we've pretty much made our views on it clear. So one more, and then we will move on to any other news. I mean, if something comes out where he would be convicted of something or something like that, of course, we'll cover that, but we're not going to beat that horse to death. Um, and I think that's it. So have a great uh, rest of your week. I hope you're having a wonderful 2024. And if the weather's anything like it is in St. Louis, uh, get out there and enjoy the weather. This has been a crazy winter. Until next time, everybody. Bye-bye.